Thanks for joining us. I'm e. Martinez of Take Two on KPCC, Southern California Public Radio, sitting in for Diane Rehm. A ceasefire in Syria holds amid uh, accusations of violations. The U.S. and Israel sign a record military aid deal worth $38 billion. And the head of the U.N. calls for urgent action against North Korea after last week's nuclear test. Here to discuss this week's top international stories on the Friday News Roundup, Mark Landler of the New York Times, Mary Beth Sheridan of the Washington Post, and Uri Friedman of the Atlantic. My thanks to all three of you for being here. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. eh? All right. uh, Let us start with you, Mary Beth. Uh, What's the latest on the Syrian ceasefire agreement that was brokered by Russia and the U.S.? It took effect on Monday. We talked about it earlier this week on the Diane Reem show. Uh, Is it holding okay? Well, uh, it's barely holding, and I think the signs are not particularly good. Uh, There were clashes this morning that broke out near Damascus, which were uh, the fiercest since the agreement was uh, took took effect. Um, you also have had these real delays in getting any aid into um, into Syria for the besieged people in Aleppo, and that's a fundamental part of this agreement: is trying to stop the fighting so that uh, the aid can get to these desperate people. And there's been seemingly one roadblock after the other. Wow, uh, Mark. When it when it comes to Assad's regime, um, UN officials say it's holding up. Uh, and Mary Beth mentioned the delivery. So where where do things go from here? Well, I mean, one of the important things will be to see whether uh, the Russians can lean on the Syrian regime to actually re- remove its uh, its military uh, from the road that leads into Aleppo. Uh, and that's the part that's in some dispute right now. Um, beyond that, the interesting thing will be to see whether the U.S. and the Russians manage to make common cause in terms of jointly targeting either al-Nusra positions or, or ISIS positions. Um, and uh, and it'll be interesting to see whether the Russians uh, peel away at all from the Assad regime. Um, That's sort of the part of this that is the longer-term consideration. Um, It's worth noting that there's a lot about this deal that's controversial inside the U.S. government as well. Um, The State Department and the Defense Department have had a fairly open rift over the wisdom of doing this ceasefire, and particularly on the issue of whether the Russians and the U.S. should jointly target uh, enemy positions. The Pentagon is deeply skeptical of that. The Defense Secretary Ashton Carter has been pretty vocal and blunt about that. Uh, the, the Secretary of State, John Kerry, who brokered this deal, uh, is pushing hard for it on the argument that what else are we going to do? Um, but it's really not just a settled uh, situation on the ground in Syria. It's also an unsettled situation within the administration here in Washington. He calls it, uh, Secretary uh, Kerry calls it uh, the last chance to hold Syria together, or I mean, that that sounds very dire. Yeah, I mean, what he's arguing is that if we don't do anything, the fighting could escalate, more migrants could be created, there could be more of a migrant crisis. And he even said on NPR earlier this week that uh, Syria could be split into enclaves, uh, where you have a Sunni enclave, a a Kurdish enclave, an enclave that Assad controls. So I think he's painting a pretty dire picture of the situation right now. And, you know, he wants to kind of create a sense of urgency about this idea of uh, really trying to make this deal work. I think the... um, issue is that there's a lot more to be worked out between Russia and the United States when it comes to what happens if the ceasefire holds. If they, as Mark mentioned, if they are going to jointly uh, target ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra, um, well, the U.S. and Russia have never worked militar- mil- uh, in a military sense together mm-hmm. like that. You know, they've worked on diplomatically on the Iran deal. They've worked on 
getting rid of Assad's chemical weapons. But the idea of military cooperation is really unprecedented. Don't forget, you can give us a call, uh, 1-800-433-8850. That's 1-800-433-8850. You can also email us, uh, drshow at wamu.org. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. And my Twitter handle is amartinezla. Mark, I want to go back to you for a second. You mentioned um, Russia maybe backing off on Assad. How likely could that possibly be? It seems like a, a line has been drawn in the sand on that, I thought. Well, I think that it's pretty clear that it's, it's going to be very difficult to see that. Um, and, you know, the only question is whether the Russians conclude, uh, for whatever reason, that they their engagement has run its course. Um, you know, Syria remains a very important regional ally for them. Um, and, you know, the important thing uh, to remember about all of this is that really for some time now, it isn't so much the Assad regime that's been in the crosshairs. Um, I think even on the U.S. side, there's a recognition that that um, Assad is not the first order of business. The first order of business is al-Nusra and ISIS. And so um, I, I think that, you know, it's unlikely we're going to see any striking change. Um, but the prospect of the U.S. and the Russians working together in Syria would be a huge sea change in the way this conflict has unfolded. And out of that could come some, you know, unpredictable consequences. So I think it's right f- to focus very much on whether this joint targeting uh, works. Uh, and, and if it does, then I think we can be open to more unusual uh, consequences flowing out of that. But it's too soon to say right now that it will work. Mary Beth, what do you think a joint U.S.-Russia airstrike uh, situation would look like? You know, it's really hard to know because this agreement has not been made public, so a lot of the actual working um, details are are not known at this point. We do know that um, the DOD officials have been trying to draw up maps where they would try to identify where are there areas where it's, say, almost all, all ISIS or almost all Jabhat al-Nusra, where are there areas where they're mixed? Because for the U.S., the big problem is some of the rebels that the U.S. has backed are working quite closely with al-Nusra. So how do you uh, coordinate those in a way that you don't hit the people you're, um, you're backing? Um, there's also been a lot of, uh, you know, discussion at the Pentagon about how do you, you know, how do you do these in a way that uh, the U.S. isn't legally responsible if uh, the Russians happen to hit a target that turns out to be civilian. It's it's, it's really intensely complicated. And Marie, Mary Beth mentioned how the details, some of the details haven't been made public. I guess that's one of the biggest problems, isn't it, that not everyone is completely clear on what exactly this is all about. Even Secretary of State John Kerry isn't totally clear. Earlier in the week, he suggested or seemed to suggest that they might... Uh, the U.S. might evaluate Syrian airstrikes that happen, and then he, the State Department actually kind of walked that back and said, no, it's just Russia and the United States that are coordinating. So I think there is a lot of confusion. We do know that there is a rough outline of kind of a staged process in the ideal world, right? Not necessarily mm-hmm. that it's going to happen. But there, there's this joint uh, targeting. Then uh, the Syrian Air Force stops hitting rebel-held areas. Humanitarian aid is able to uh, be delivered. And lastly, rebel groups and uh, the government side come to some kind of peace talks where they talk about potentially a transition. Now, that is the ideal roadmap, but that's a long, long way off from a week-long ceasefire. And I think that's we have to put that in perspective and realize. One last thing I'd add, though, is, you know, even if the ceasefire doesn't hold, um, sometimes we underestimate the value of failed ceasefires. If a failed ceasefire uh, doesn't work, but it builds confidence or a modicum of confidence among the parties, you know, it can lead to more trust down the line. So you can a lot of final peace deals are built on broken 
ceasefires in the past, mm. or they have been sometimes. Other times, it can actually reduce trust. But even if this fails, there's a potential that the sides that need to come together to make a peace deal work could gain a little more confidence in each other. Let's stay on this roadmap for a second. Uh, Mark, how, how does this thing maybe play out in the future, for it to be a success for as many sides as possible here? Well, how it would play out is that somehow the Russians and the U.S. Uh, come to some terms on how they can jointly target, um, and uh, they uh, the Russians are able to lean enough on Assad that he moves his troops out of the way and allows the humanitarian aid to flow into Aleppo. Um, and then, uh, as Yuri said, um, this process, shaky as it is, begins to engender uh, a level of confidence. And, and it is true about ceasefires. Once you've had one and proven that you can stop the hostility, it becomes easier to try to do it in the future, even if this particular ceasefire falls apart. Um, but the complicated thing about Syria is that we really have two separate issues going on in parallel. One is the fight against ISIS and its affiliates, and the other is the civil war involving the Assad regime. And the two of them are linked, but they're not exactly the same, and different actors have different agendas. Um, the uh, Russians care very deeply, I think, about uh, shoring up Assad and keeping their interests in Syria alive. The Americans care overwhelmingly about defeating ISIS and pushing it out of its uh, strongholds in, in the northern part of Syria. And uh, and, th and then you have a lot of affiliated players. The Turks uh, care deeply about Syria, but they worry deeply about the role of the uh, of the Kurds. Um, the Iranians care deeply. Uh, Assad is a strategic ally of theirs. Um, so you've got all of these various players um, that have differing agendas on, a, on a, just an increasingly complex battlefield. So to say that it's going to play out in any sort of coherent way is probably just not, not realistic. I think we're in for fits and starts and setbacks and progress, and then hopefully over time it moves genuinely in the right direction. Mary Beth, if the people that need the help get it, that the need the aid desperately get it, and if everything else fails, I mean, is it, can, we, can we look at it as, hey, at least that happened? Well, that would be wonderful, but I think the issue is that... Um, the fighting has to end on on the the roads that are leading to these besieged places. The government has to agree to not uh, not uh, cut them off from aid, and it's been doing that in a number of places, and and has succeeded actually in taking over a number of different towns by using that tactic. So I think these are really um, interrelated. It's it's I uh, it's it's a ceasefire and the ability to deliver aid. So it's kind of hard to to break them apart. As always, you can join us, 800-433-8850. That's 1-800-433-8850. You can also find us, drshow at wamu.org or Facebook and Twitter as well. Coming up, more of the Friday News Roundup. I'm Martinez filling in for Diane Rehm. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. It's news, culture, and curiosities. From the district, Tacoma Park, Alexandria, Friendship Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church, Northeast Washington, D.C., in your inbox every weekday afternoon. 
DCS Daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. Welcome back. I'm Ian Martinez of Take Two on KPCC, Southern California Public Radio, sitting in for Diane Rehm. Our guest today, Mark Landler, White House correspondent, The New York Times, and author of Alter Egos, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and the Twilight Struggle Over American Power. Mary Beth Sheridan, deputy foreign editor at The Washington Post, and Uri Freeman, staff writer at The Atlantic, covering global affairs. Before we get back to you three, let's uh, go out to Manila. Uh, Emily Rahala, she's China correspondent for The Washington Post. She's currently on assignment in Manila. Emily, you there? I'm here. Hello. Hello, Emily. Now, you were at the uh, Philippine Senate and uh, heard testimony from a man who alleges that uh, he was a hitman for the president of the Philippines, Duterte, uh, when Duterte was mayor of the town that he was mayor of. Tell us about uh, the testimony you heard. Sure. The, the testimony yesterday was was truly extraordinary uh, in, for several reasons. Um, the first is that it's the first time there's actually been sworn uh, public testimony on the so-called Davao Death Squad, which is um, what human rights groups have called the group of contract killers alleged to have carried out um, murders on Duterte's uh, behalf. The second reason it was extraordinary is that the simply detail um, it was sort of right out of a bad gangster movie, but in real life, um, victims killed uh, for money, victims fed to crocodiles, victims dumped, dumped in the ocean. Um, the, the level of detail was truly explosive. The witness uh, said that uh, not just drug dealers and criminals were targeted. He allegedly even ordered uh, the hit squad to kill the boyfriend of his own sister, the president's sister, and a, and a millionaire hotel owner um i mean it just it just seems like it's not real like it's a movie or something i just it's hard to believe all of the things that are coming out of the philippines right now i mean that's very true um it it has sort of a cinematic quality to it and i should emphasize that these are allegations Mm -hmm. um this is the sworn testimony of one man um and you know none of these have been have been proven at the same time in broad strokes what he said was consistent with what human rights groups and Duterte's critics have said for years, which is that there was, you know, contract killing of both uh, alleged criminals who were executed and as well as, you know, contract killing of opponents. Um, The death of a journalist was named specifically the hotel um, millionaire that you mentioned. Very specific um, politically motivated attacks were alleged in the hearing, and, and that's why it's really sort of rocked the country. The witness is named uh, Edgar Matubato. He's 57. Um, is he viewed as credible? It's hard to say. Um, on one hand, he's a witness brought forward by, you know, senators and the respected Human Rights Commission, but very little is known about him. Um, there are questions raised by the Duterte camp about where this guy came from, why he chose to come forward, where has he been for the last few years while he, uh, since he has you know, left the, the former mayor, the current president's service. Um, a lot of those questions, the details about his whereabouts for the last few years, are being withheld, um, allegedly you know, for the safety of the people who protected him. But certainly Duterte's camp is raising questions about his credibility, and, and there's no sort of firm verdict on that yet, as far as I'm concerned. How has President Duterte responded? 
It's been very interesting. Um, the, the president, as you know, is, is, is quick to speak usually and, and usually speaks his mind. He hasn't, as far as I know, addressed the, the remarks of the specific allegations, but he's had some of his uh, closest uh, advisors and some of the other people named in the hearing, including his son um, and some of his political allies, speak out on his behalf. As far as I've seen, no one has denied specific uh, allegations, but they had sort of dismissed the process and, and called what the witness said hearsay and tried to paint what the witness said as a politically motivated move against the president, sort of a allegations of a plot against the president. It has been their line. But we haven't actually heard from him on the specific allegations. What about the Philippine public? They, they seemingly love the guy. Um, what have, What's the response been in the country? Uh, it's very mixed. I'm actually calling right now from outside a week for a victim of one of these recent extrajudicial uh, police killings. Um, the father of one of these guys who was just shot by the police without a trial, without any sort of due process, just on the suspicion of being a drug dealer, told me that he voted for Duterte. And, you know, rather than outright condemn the president, he said, you know, I like what he's doing for the people, I like what he's doing for the poor, but, you know, he shouldn't have killed my son. So despite, you know, 3,000 bodies, the president remains popular. Um, he's seen as someone who can take care of business, someone who's going to clean up the streets, someone who's going to end you know, drug use, um, and he remains popular. The, the other factor on that, though, is critics um, in an era where bodies are piling up, literally, you know, there's 3,000 estimated dead since July. It's not a good time to voice criticism. So I'm sure there are critics of the president, but at this time they're not feeling like they can can level much direct criticism at him. And my last uh, question for you um President Duterte has been, uh, fair to say, aggressive when talking about the U.S., talking about President Obama, and also about his seeming desire to move closer to China. What's, what's your take on, on the stances uh, we're hearing from him? Uh, well, the, the first thing is that he hasn't been consistent. Um, at, you know, as you mentioned, he's made some extremely strong comments, comments that have been interpreted in the United States as anti-American. Um, he's referenced U.S. colonial history. But then what happens every time he makes one of these comments is his team sort of moves afterwards to walk it back. Um, I spent the last day talking to um, Western diplomats in Manila, um, Filipino intellectuals, and I think everyone here has the same question. It's very unclear what his policy direction is, what's just talk, what's just rhetoric and, and strongman posturing, and what is a significant change in policy. And what I've heard so far is that People don't believe he will actually make, uh, you know, abandon the relationship with the U.S., move away from military ties. But there may be a, a cooling of that relationship um, over the next, you know, six years of his presidency. Thank you very much, Emily. Thank you. That's Emily Rahala. She's China's correspondent for the Washington, actually China correspondent for the Washington Post. She's on assignment in Manila. Now back uh, to Mark Landler, Mary Beth Sheridan, and Uri Friedman. Uh, Mark. We mentioned, and it does have a cinematic quality. Uh, that's the way uh, Emily described it. But it, it is amazing to hear that uh, someone in a country that the United States has a real good relationship with, uh, as it is the uh, the Philippines uh, foreign, foreign secretary, said it's a cooperative and uh, and uh, symbiotic relationship yesterday in D.C. Mm -hmm. But so how do we how do we 
kind of see this man in across the Pacific? Well, in the short run, it's a quandary for the United States. Um, I, I traveled to Asia with President Obama last week, and, and you'll recall that um, the, there was meant to be a, a meeting, an introductory meeting with, with Obama and Duterte, and Duterte unleashed this uh, profanity-laden diatribe against President Obama, and, and President Obama canceled the meeting. He later you know, shook his hand, and they exchanged pleasantries, uh, but it was a very inauspicious start um, for that relationship. And and it's complicated for the U.S. because the Philippines is a treaty ally of the U.S. and they are a a very important player in a kind of an emerging situation with the Chinese over the South China Sea. Um, There are some disputed uh, reefs and shoals between China and the Philippines. It's become increasingly tense. And the U.S. will be looking to the Philippines to uh, show some restraint but also some backbone toward the Chinese. So in a way we we need a, a reliable um, predictable leader in that job right now, and at least for the short run, as Duterte finds his footing, we don't have that. We have the opposite. We have an erratic leader who says and does things that seem to be really beyond the pale. So I think that the U.S. is probably looking at the Philippines with um, some level of concern. They're probably hoping that over time he settles down, uh, he gets a team around him. Um, some of the uh, contradictions in his policies are clarified um, as, as uh, Emily correctly said he's been on the record as saying he wants American troops out of the Philippines. Then he says he doesn't. He seems to be tilting toward China. Then it's not so clear. So I think that the hope is that over time he settles down, we get some clarity, but it's a very difficult moment uh, to have a leader in the Philippines who's so unpredictable. Mary Beth, that uh, same uh, Philippines Foreign Secretary yesterday who called the relationship between the U.S. cooperative and symbiotic also said the Philippines cannot forever be the little brown brothers of America. So I... How do we kind of filter that and and understand where they stand when it comes to our relationship? Right. So I think um, what's important to understand is is why is Duterte so popular with this uh, approach that seems so unusual to us? And I think he is playing to the crowd. He's playing to populism. He's a guy who has won popularity because he's not politically correct. Um, And and I think the Philippines Sounds like someone we know. hmm. (laughs) Um, So I think in the Philippines, there's somewhat of a mixed feeling between, uh, yes, they, they remember very well the period in which uh, they were sort of a colonial, uh, you know, they, 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 uh, the U.S. really had, had military bases, had so much control over the country. Um, and, and there's some resentment of that. On the other hand, there's fear of China's growing power in the region. And so under the previous government of Benigno Aquino, there was a, there was a, a, a distinct warming of relations and a desire for more military cooperation with the U.S. So, so you really have these two um, phenomena going on at the same time. Or is there a chance that we lose an ally in terms of how they're getting? I mean, after all, the Philippines and China are next door neighbors. We're an ocean away. So do we fault the Philippines for maybe looking for an ally that's closer to them? I don't see any immediate danger of uh, them not becoming an ally. Uh, as Emily mentioned and Mark mentioned, you know, there has been kind of a back and forth in terms of how strongly um, Duterte means what he says when he talks about straining the U.S. alliance. I do think there are major irritants right now in the alliance that could gradually uh, make that alliance a lot weaker at a time when the U.S. is trying to counter China in the Asia-Pacific region. So just one example, um, human rights uh, and the rule of law. So uh, Duterte has kind of lashed out at Obama for what he perceives as a lecturing from the United States about human rights and the rule of law. He said, China will help us. Uh, The U.S. just gives us principles of law. Um, And he's he's kind of um, chafed at that, especially from a former colonial power. 
On the other hand, as Emily mentioned, 3,000 people have reportedly been killed by vigilantes or uh, police units because they were suspected drug users or drug dealers. To make that statistic even more remarkable, uh, Duterte has only been president since June 30th. This is two and a half months and 3,000 people. You know, if you kind of look at that on a daily basis, that's about 50 people per day who are dying. And I think, you know, if that continues and there's no necessarily any indication that it won't, how does the U.S. handle trying to keep this precarious alliance afloat while dealing with these human rights issues and that kind of criticism will make Duterte even move more towards China. So I think that's going to be a real challenge going forward. Ami Martinez, you're listening to The Diane Reem Show. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, 1-800-433-8850. That's 1-800-433-8850. You can send us an email to drshow at wamu.org or find us on Facebook or send us a tweet. My Twitter handle is amartinezla. Uh, our guest, uh, Mark Landler, White House correspondent at the New York Times, author of the book Alter Egos, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and the Twilight Struggle over American Power. Mary Beth Sheridan, uh, deputy foreign editor at the Washington Post, and Uri Friedman, staff writer at the Atlantic covering global affairs. Let's stay in uh, Asia for a second, go to North Korea. A U.N. Secretary General is calling for urgent action by the Security Council to uh, rein in North Korea's nuclear program and sanctions uh, don't seem to be having an effect. Mark, are there any new approaches maybe on the table? Well, this is a, one of the real conundrums uh, in foreign policy right now. Um, the North Koreans appear to be on the road to uh, really delivering a nuclear weapon that um, within some period of time could potentially reach the uh, the U.S. mainland. Uh, and, and it certainly has long since threatened uh, its immediate neighbors, South Korea and Japan. Um, the Obama administration for seven and a half years has sort of pursued a strategy that's been loosely called strategic patience. They've not really engaged the uh, North Koreans diplomatically with a couple of um, brief exceptions uh, and they've sort of tried to squeeze the sanctions tighter and tighter Um, but there are problems with that one is that some of these sanctions are difficult to enforce and there's slippage and and uh, and and certain things are getting to North Korea that shouldn't be secondly if you really want to make sanctions bite you really have to go after uh, Chinese entities that are active in North Korea beyond the limited areas of ballistic missiles and the nuclear program Chinese banks, for example, that do all kinds of business with the North Koreans. These are called secondary sanctions, and they're kind of the next, the new frontier in sanctioning North Korea. The problem with those sanctions is they would aggravate tensions with the Chinese. They would spike tensions. And and we've been walking this delicate balance with the Chinese where we want them to use their influence to crack down on the North Koreans, but we want to avoid antagonizing them in the process. So I think that a lot of policymakers are really struggling with the question of, what is the obvious next step? There isn't really one. Military action is sort of hard to conceive at this point, given the proximity of South Korea to the north. Um, and uh, and the sanctions, as I say, have some built-in limitations. So I think that, you know, whoever is elected president in November will probably conduct a thorough policy review on North Korea. But it's not as though there's an easy panacea or, an, or a uh, proposal that hasn't been tried yet. The administrations from Barack Obama to George W. Bush to Bill Clinton have all struggled with this same issue, uh, and and I think all have failed to some degree to halt the progress of North Korea toward having this deliverable nuclear uh, ability. Mary Beth, how entrenched is China in their position? 
Because here's the thing with nuclear weapons, whether you, you, whether, whatever you feel about the country that has them, they can be pointed to anyone. <laughs> well, that's that's very true. And I think China's had a, a bit of an uncomfortable situation this week, as or in recent weeks, as North Korea, or North Korea's been testing its missiles and yeah. a couple have gone to China. Um, here's the issue for China. Uh, uh, it, it is incredibly influential in North Korea. Seventy percent of North Korea's uh, trade is with China. Uh, so you would think that China would be able to really kind of put the screws on North Korea. Um, but China's concerns are, you know, it, it really wants a friendly ally on its border. Um, so it's very, very hesitant about any kind of uh, regime change. And I also think China really fears a chaotic situation in North Korea in which the government uh, collapses and the country is in a state of, you know, crisis. It's already a country suffering terrible problems with, you know, with hunger and so on. So the idea of um, hundreds of thousands of people f- fleeing over the border or some some situation like that is deeply troubling to China. So they've just been, uh, you know, they've, they've certainly participated in uh, different rounds of sanctions, but it, it's it's very tricky for them. And already Japan seems to be getting a little nervous, too. Yeah, I mean, I think Japan, South Korea, uh, you know, Ban Ki-moon, the UN Secretary uh, General, who's a former South Korean foreign minister, said this uh, week that he's never seen tensions as high as they are uh, on the Korean Peninsula right now. And I think uh, that's because North Korea is advancing in its nuclear program, and that has all its neighbors uh, very worried. I think um, there's also kind of a there's a bit of a hands-up-in-the-air moment, I think, right now, because, um, you know, I saw a North Korean expert, Andrei Lenkov, who wrote a piece today, uh, this week, that said, you know, d- sanctions aren't working, diplomacy isn't working, we can't do military uh, strikes, uh, China won't budge, they're pretty firm in their position. We have nothing left to do but try to get information in there and see if the people change their minds about their leaders. So I think that's part of the issue. Coming up on the Diane Reem Show, we'll move from North Korea to Myanmar. We'll also be taking your thoughts to 1-800-433-8850. Coming up by your calls and questions. Dave Martinez filling in for Diane Reem. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Ian Martinez of Take Two on KPCC, Southern California Public Radio, sitting in for Diane Rehm. Our guest today, Mark Landler, White House correspondent at The New York Times and author of the book Alter Egos, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and the Twilight Struggle Over American Power. Mary Beth Sheridan, Deputy Foreign Editor at The Washington Post, and Uri Friedman, Staff Writer at The Atlantic, covering global affairs. As always, you can get a hold of us at 1-800-433-8850. That's 1-800-433-8850. You can email us, drshow at wa. AMU.org. Uh, that's drshow at wamu.org. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at A Martinez LA. All right. Uh, so from North Korea, let's uh, go to Myanmar. President Obama announced that uh, he will be lifting all of the U.S. trade restrictions placed on Myanmar. Uh, Mark, how does this change things for Myanmar? Well, potentially hugely. Um, this is kind of the final step in what's been a historic diplomatic opening by the Obama administration, uh, one that was uh, engineered in the early days by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Uh, and it's a bipartisan success. Um, uh, Republicans in Congress, including Mitch McConnell, who have uh, f- for a long time made Myanmar uh, a-, a top political priority and erected many of these sanctions, are also sort of in favor of this opening. Um, it's not without controversy. 
controversy. Um, some human rights groups have uh, have raised objections in recent days, saying that the U.S. is giving up whatever leverage it had left to uh, force the political opening to continue in Myanmar. Um, Aung San Suu Kyi, the pro-democracy icon who's now effectively the de facto head of the government, came to the White House this week, um, and she's a beloved figure, uh, and uh, President Obama and, and Secretary Clinton have both forged a close relationship with her. But rights groups will point out that even Aung San Suu Kyi uh, doesn't have an unblemished record. Um, there is a Muslim minority in, in Myanmar, the Rohingya, and the uh, government, including Aung San Suu Kyi, are viewed as not having done enough to prevent the systematic persecution of these people. So there are still some outstanding concerns. Uh, as with Cuba, another diplomatic opening, these are not just seamless, smooth processes. They, they, they proceed in fits and starts. And um, I do think that some in the rights community would have preferred to see the U.S. be a little more uh, withholding about this. But the Obama administration's argument is, look, they've delivered on what they promised to do. They now have Aung San Suu Kyi is the head of the government in a democratic process, uh, and we are now delivering on our side of the bargain uh, with the bet that bringing American companies and investors into that into that country will only continue the process of opening the society, and then crucially, um, perhaps drawing Myanmar away from what had been a very close economic relationship with the Chinese, putting them may, maybe perhaps more in the American orbit. So there's a geopolitical dimension to this as well. Mary Beth, when it comes to whoever, what happens to be in the White House next, uh, does it matter at this point if, if they support lifting those sanctions or, does, or is, it, is it just what the president did and that's it and then we don't have, they don't have to think about it? Well, some of these measures do have to go through Congress, so uh, this is not something that uh, will, will all happen immediately. But my sense is that, uh, as Mark mentioned, there is pretty much of a bipartisan consensus on trying to work with uh, with the Aung San Suu Kyi government. And um, I would be surprised. And, and she herself has, uh, while she's been criticized for perhaps not moving as fast as she should have with uh, some of the ethnic minorities, while the military still has an extraordinary amount of power, um, I don't see a scenario in which uh, this would be rolled back. Uri, when it comes to the people that have said that maybe this, the, the, and, and Mark just mentioned about lifting sanctions means that you're giving up leverage. Um, is it giving up leverage? I mean, if they've come up with all of the things that the United States wants them to do, I mean, shouldn't they be, I hate to use this word, rewarded? Well, actually, rewarded is exactly what Obama said when he met okay. with Aung San Suu Kyi in the White House. He said, we want to show that we will meet positive steps forward with some kind of reward. And it, it seems like Aung San Suu Kyi is also, you know, she has long um, kind of argued that lifting sanctions too early could um, uh, reverse some of these reforms. But she seems to be... If, if maybe reluctantly supportive of what the White House is doing as well. And I think the idea is we've seen enough steps uh, that uh, it's worth trying to show rewards, show that the U.S. acknowledges progress. And also, not only that, they need an economic boost. You know, mm -hmm. the, I think that n not all of these sanctions are necessarily going to have a great economic uh, positive effect for the whole population. Um, but on the other hand, you know, they are looking to have more economic growth and have more economic rewards from opening up. And I think she re realized that's an important goal as well. Selfishly for the U.S. And uh, that means that we get in there, right, make, to make some money. It does. It does. But as I said earlier, I wanted to sort of put it in a broader context. One of the things the Obama administration has done very deliberately with its Asia policy is try to 
shore up our relationships in Southeast Asia. That's why the Philippines is so important. We were talking about that earlier. Um, and, and that's also, I think, why the Myanmar relationship is another piece in that puzzle. Uh, if you sort of reassert American presence in that region uh, politically, diplomatically, and economically, it provides a kind of a counterweight to China's dominance of the Asia-Pacific region. So I think that there's the obvious commercial incentive, but there is also this sort of geopolitical incentive. All right. Uh, from Myanmar, Let's now go to South America and Brazil. Former President uh, Dilma Rousseff uh, isn't the only Brazilian leader in hot water at the moment. Uh, Uri, can you explain the corruption charges against ex-President Lula da Silva? Sure. Um, so he is currently he has been charged with uh, corruption in terms of taking bribes and money laundering. The idea, the notion here is that he had an uh, apartment that he used in near Sao Paulo, a beachside apartment, and the charge is that he uh, allowed a construction company um, to renovate it, and that construction company was part of a very, very massive uh, scandal in Brazil right now that has involved business leaders, uh, dozens of politicians, and. And uh, has involved billions of dollar, dollars that were siphoned off from the oil uh, state oil company Petrobras to construction companies and politicians. And so he is being charged with that. Not only that, though, they were pretty grandiloquent in um, the charges. They also said that he uh, was the conductor of a criminal orchestra uh, and the criminal orchestra. That's right. Okay. That was the uh, language that the prosecutor used. And the idea there was that he was the head of the Workers' Party. Um, he was in government at the time this corruption scandal was going on. Um, and he must have known that all of this was happening. I will say, though, that it's kind of uh, those charges right now from the reporting I've seen seem kind of speculative. The prosecutor hasn't brought very concrete evidence that he was a kind of mastermind here. Um, but They've also brought these more specific charges, money laundering, corruption, and that is what uh, is happening now. And we'll see what happens with that. He has been charged, but uh, there has been no uh, prosecution just yet. Mary Beth, how much has the U.S. paid attention to this? It doesn't doesn't seem like the U.S. really is that involved one way or the other. Right. So I think the importance for the U.S. is that think about Brazil's role both in uh, in, in South America and the whole region. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the it's one of the it's the largest country, has the biggest economy, uh, and it's been a, a kind of crucial interlocutor between uh, the more um, populist leftist type governments. So in terms of trying to find solutions to places like Venezuela, Brazil has had a certain ability to do that. It's been a major diplomatic force. Right. So now we have a situation where the Brazilian economy is just in a terrible situation. We have the political system, which is, you know, seeming to fall apart. And and what's important to really think about with Lula here is that this is not just one more president, right? This is a guy who was an, an extraordinarily popular leader. He managed to both sort of bring together, he came from a guerrilla past, leftist guerrilla past, but he brought together this idea that you could combine that sort of concern for social justice with market economics and democracy, right? His policies helped lift, you know, millions of people out of poverty. So, so this is a, a legend who now is is being uh, accused of being a terribly corrupt individual. And and a guy whose policies really influenced the left all over Latin America is, um, you know, really in danger of, of, of going to 
possibly to jail, depending on how these charges, if, if indeed the evidence backs this up. So, you know, you, you, this is a, just a crucial country in the hemisphere, and uh, it's it's really just adrift. I'm ashamed to admit this, but I will, that one of the reasons why I even know about this is because of the Olympics being in Brazil and all the sports news. Come. So all of a sudden, the the microscope of the world went on Brazil. And, and Mark, I guess, I, I mean, for me, I yeah, I, I mix sports and politics together, but Mary Beth mentioned how big Brazil is and how critical it is in the way, I guess, the United States filters everything with all of the the countries in South America, Venezuela, Ecuador, they're all seemingly have something to do with the United States in in trying to establish a relationship. But Brazil seems to be the leader in that in that charge. No, there's no question about that. And I actually think bringing up the Olympics is absolutely relevant because, you know, there was a great deal of um, of uh, trepidation in the months leading up to the Olympics that the political chaos in the country. The trepidation economic, is a nice word, too, because right. it was a, uh, at least we thought it might be a disaster. Well, that's what I was about yeah. to say. There was this belief that the Olympics were sort of destined to fail and would sort of reveal all the chaos in mm-hmm. the country at large. You had a president who was impeached. You had uh, Lula facing the possibility of criminal indictment. You have a new New president, vice president, who uh, former vice president who heads a government that has a 15 percent approval rating. And the Olympics, as you well know, were deeply unpopular with people in Rio. Um, and yet, one must say, uh, they came off without a hitch uh, and they were really quite successful, at least as a public uh, spectacle. And I think it goes to a sort of a broader uh, observation that one can make about Brazil through all of these ups and downs and chaos. There is a kind of a muddling through quality about the Brazilians. Perhaps they're not living up to the high hopes that people had for them seven or ten years ago when they were always referred to as one of the BRIC countries, one of the great emerging economies of the world. But the fact is they do find a way to muddle through. And I think the Olympics were actually a timely reminder that we shouldn't assume that they won't figure this all out as well. They have a knack for doing it. Yeah, the, I, I never forget some of the and what body parts in the water. Uh, athletes should not put their head below water. Uh, Zika, you're going to get bit. You're going to take. I, I, I haven't seen any numbers yet, and it's only been a few months, but I haven't seen any cases of Zika spreading worldwide. Mary Beth. Yeah, I, I I just wanted to uh, uh, follow up on Mark's point. I I think he's right that Brazil will not you know collapse or something, but I do think that you're looking at the discrediting of a democratic system, right? Mm. Brazil was a country that was ruled by the military for many years, and when you look at the unpopularity of the current leadership, it's really the unpopularity of a system. And I think there's deep questioning about whether democracy works. And when you see uh, these folks who had appeared to be um, great leaders, in fact, now there's charges. They were, you know, some of them filling their pockets with money or brokering all sorts of deals, staying in power and making alliances by uh, arranging bribes everywhere. You know, you look around Latin America right now and you see a real sense of um, people's approval of democracy dropping. And I think that's quite frightening. Yeah. it, my family's from Ecuador. Um, I just went to Ecuador uh, last year. Went there for a, for a month and a half. And, and you're right, Mary Beth. That's the I, and the, the dollar is the currency in Ecuador. And there's a lot of Ecuadorians that can't stand that. They can't stand that connection or to the United States. And and I, I'm wondering. I know we, we're going to focus on other things, but wondering what that means for South America in general going forward with a brand new president coming up uh, in a month and a half. How that relationship with all those countries in the U.S. is it is it fragile? Is it is it steady? What should we Call it. How should we look at it? I, I think it's really up in up in the air. You know, I think that there are there was kind of a period where it felt that the Latin American left was kind of uh, f- 
you know, having a bad moment in a moment where it was kind of falling from from power. You had Hugo Chavez um, die in Venezuela. Uh, you have now um, a more right-leaning uh, president in Brazil. Um, and so there was a period where this, you know, there was a thought that this populism was waning. Um, the populism is often accompanied by anti-American sentiment. Um, but I think it a lot depends on who is the next president. I mean, you just had Donald Trump go to Mexico and then say he had a good trip because the uh, um, official, the Mexican official who organized it had to resign because it was such a disaster for Mexico. Mm-hmm. I mean, if that's his idea of having a good success in the region, then if he becomes president, there might be a lot uh, more turbulence. I imagine that if Hillary Clinton becomes president, we wouldn't see that big of a change in terms of the U.S. relationship with many of those countries um, because there would be a lot of continuity with what Obama's foreign policy is. I mean, Martinez, you're listening to The Diane Reem Show. Our guests, Mark Landler, White House correspondent of the New York Times, Mary Beth Sheridan, deputy foreign editor at the Washington Post, and Uri Friedman, staff writer at The Atlantic, covering global affairs. All right, let's go to uh, Israel now to uh, wrap up this hour. Uh, Uri, uh, tell us about the military aid deal that the U.S. signed with Israel this week. It is huge, $38 billion bucks. $38 billion over 10 years. It's actually, um, it's, you know, I saw um, in the reporting that it's, half of all direct military uh, aid that the U.S. provides worldwide. So this is a really big ticket. It's a big ticket item. Um, It's an increase over the past 10-year agreement. um, And I think one of the interesting things about this is that it has happened despite a lot of ambient um, reasons why it might not have happened. So, for example, uh, the, the relationship between Barack Obama and Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, is kind of rocky. Uh, It Mm -hmm. has been for years, and that's because of disagreements over the Iran deal and over the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. You also have a political... It's a moment of political transition in the United States right now, Um, and so it's unclear what that'll mean for U.S.-Israeli relations. And also, there is a segment of um, Democratic voters and young Americans who don't feel that the U.S. should be uh, providing the kind of military aid that it provides uh, to Israel. And so, despite all of those things, though, this went through, and I think uh, the Obama administration feels that it's a, a good example before they leave office of their commitment uh, to Israel and also a way to smooth over relations that were frayed by the Iran deal. And also Israel, I think from Israel's perspective, it's also good to get this done if, if America is willing before the next president becomes, um, comes into office and before there's, you know, there's some uncertainty around what would happen then. Mark, what do you think about the timing of this? What does it say? Well, I think it was clearly designed to, uh, to try to end the Obama administration on a, on, a, on a sort of a positive note with the Israelis. And it delivers on what President Obama always said, which was his determination to help the Israelis retain what he calls a qualitative military edge. And so he's delivered on that. I, there is an interesting thing about the way the president announced this. Um, in the second paragraph of his statement on this, he reaffirmed the fact that true security for Israel would only come if Israel actually followed through and delivered on a two-state solution with the Palestinians. So it was interesting that the president kind of went back to first principles on the Middle East peace process, even as he announced this deal. I think that probably the Netanyahu government wasn't thrilled to see that language in there. Uh, the president, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, has clashed, as Yuri said repeatedly with um, President Obama on this issue. And it raises at least the prospect that President Obama may return to this theme before he leaves office. There's been a lot of speculation about whether he'll give a speech and lay out some sort of a roadmap for a peace deal. Uh, There had been some talk that he might even go to the United Nations and seek a Security Council resolution. That seems less likely now. But the point is, the president didn't just announce the defense deal without reminding people that there's a very uh, important unfinished piece of business here. Mary Beth, uh, you get 30 seconds, a last word on on this deal and what it means. 
Um, well, as, as has been said, it's really an interesting sign of the of the bipartisan commitment, of course, to Israel. But as Mark mentioned, um, you know, there's a sense, too, that Obama has now sort of shown his pro-Israel bona fides, and he can he can potentially try to uh, move the ball forward in terms of, you know, the, the, the constantly frustrated efforts to uh, press for some sort of peace deal. So it'll be interesting to see if that indeed uh, happens in the next couple months. All right. My guest today, Mary Beth Sheridan, Deputy Foreign Editor at The Washington Post, Uri Friedman, staff writer at The Atlantic, covering global affairs, and Mark Landler, White House correspondent at The New York Times and author of Alter Egos, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and the Twilight Struggle over American Power. My thanks to all three for being here. Thank you. Thanks very much, Jay. Javi Martinez of Take Two on KPCC, Southern California Public Radio, sitting in for Diane Rehm. Thank you very much for listening. The Diane Rehm Show is produced by Sandra Baker, Denise Couture, Rebecca Kaufman, Lisa Dunn, Alexandra Boti, Danielle Knight, Erica R. Hendry, Allison Brody, and Gracie McKenzie. The engineer is Douglas Bell. Danielle Brown answers the phones. Visit drshow.org for audio archives, transcripts, and podcasts. Our email address is drshow at wamu.org. And we're on Facebook and Twitter. This program comes to you from American University in Washington. This is NPR.